Chapter One of the Finding of Haldgren. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Finding of Haldgren by Charles Diffin. S.O.S. The Venerable President of the Federation. Aeronautique Internationale had been speaking. He paused now to look out over the sea of faces that filled the great hall in serried waves. He half turned that he might let his eyes pass over the massed company on the platform with him, the Stratosphere Control Board, and they had called in their representatives from the far corners of the earth to hear the memorable words of this aged man. From the waiting audience came no slightest sound. The men and women were as silent as that other audience listening and watching in every hamlet of the world, wherever radio and television reached. Again the figure of the President was drawn erect. The scanty white hair was thrown back from his forehead. He was speaking. And this vast development has come within the memory of one man. I, speaking to you here, in this year of 1974, have seen it all come to pass, and now I am overwhelmed with the wonder of it, even as I was when those two Americans first flew at Kitty Hawk. I myself saw that. I saw with these eyes the first crude engine-bearing kites. I saw them from 1914 to 1918, tempered and perfected in the furnace of war. I saw the coming of detonite and the beginning of our air transport of today. And always I have seen brave men, men who smiled grimly as they took those first crude controls in their hands, who laughed and waved to us as they took off in the flying coffins of the great war. Who had the courage to dare the unknown dangers of the high levels and who first threw their ships through the repelling area and blazed the air trails of a new world. And today, I who have seen all this, stand before you and say, Thank God, the spirit of brave men goes on. It has never ended. That adventurer strain, that race of Viking men. We have two of them here tonight. The whole world is pausing this instant wherever men are on land or water or air, to do honor to these two. They do not know why they are here. They have been summoned by the Stratosphere Control Board, which has delegated to me the honor of making the announcement. The tall figure was commandingly erect. For an instant, the fire of youth had returned to him. Walter Harkness, he called. Chester Bullard. Stand forth, that the eyes of the world may see. Two men arose from among the members of the board and came hesitantly forward. Strongly contrasting was the darkly handsome face of Harkness, man of wealth and pilot of the second class, and the no less pleasing features of Chet Bullard, master pilot of the world. For Bullard's curling hair was as golden as the triple star upon his chest that proclaimed his standing to the world and all the air above. 
The speaker was facing them. He turned away for a moment that he might bow to a girl who was still seated next to the chair where Walt Harkness had been. To Mrs. Harkness, he said, who, until one month ago, was Mademoiselle Delacour of her own beloved France. I shall have something further to say. She, too, has been summoned by the board, but for now I address these two. Again he was facing the two men, and now he was speaking directly to them. Pilot Harkness and Master Pilot Bullard, for you the world has been forced to create a new honor, a new mark of the world's esteem. For you two have done what never men have done before. We who have preceded you have subdued the air, but you, gentlemen, you, the first of all created beings to do so, have conquered space. And to you, because of your courage, because of your dauntless pioneer spirit, because of the unconquerable will that drove you and the inventive genius that made it possible, because all these have set you above us, more ordinary men, since they have made you the first men to fly through space. It is my privilege now to show you the honor in which you are held by the whole world. The firm voice quavered for a moment. The old hands trembled as they lifted a blazing gem from its velvet case. Chester Bullard, Master Pilot, on behalf of the Stratosphere Control Board, I bestow upon you... Stop! Every radio phone in the world must have echoed that sharp command. Every television screen must have shown to a breathless audience the figure whose blonde hair was awry, whose lean face was afire with protest, as Chet Bullard sprang forward with upraised hand. You're wrong, dead wrong. You're making a mistake. I can't accept that. The master pilot's voice was raised in earnest protest. He seemed, for the moment, unaware of the thousands of eyes that were upon him, heedless of the gasp of amazement that swept sibilantly over the vast audience like a hissing wave breaking upon the beach. And then his face flushed scarlet, though his eyes still held steadily upon the startled countenance of the man who stood transfixed, while the jewel in his hand took the light out of the nitron illuminators above and shot it back in a glory of rainbow hues. From the seated group on the platform a man came forward, commander of the air, this iron-gray man. He was head of the Stratosphere Control Board, supreme authority on all matters that concerned the air levels of the whole world, commander-in-chief of all men who laid hands on the controls of a ship. He spoke quietly now, and Chet Bullard, at his first word, snapped instantly to salute, then stood silently waiting. "'What is the meaning of this?' demanded the voice of authority. The voice seemed soft, almost gentle, yet each syllable carried throughout the hall, with the unmistakable hint of the hardness of a steel-like shell beneath the words. "'The eyes of the world are upon us here. The whole world is gathered to do you honor. Is it possible?' that you are refusing that which we offer? Why? You will speak, please." And Chet Bullard, standing stiffly at attention before his commander, 
spoke in a tone rendered almost boyish by embarrassment. I can't accept, sir. Pilot Harkness will bear me out in this. You would decorate us for being the first to navigate space, but we are not the first. Continue, ordered the quiet voice as Chet paused. You refer to Halgren, probably? To Pilot Halgren, sir. This is absurd. Halgren was lost. It is supposed that he fell back into the sea, or struck some untraveled part of Earth. I have checked over his data, sir. It is my opinion that he did not fall. His figures indicate that he must have thrown his ship beyond the gravitational influence of Earth. The commander eyed the master pilot coldly, and because you think that your conclusions are more accurate than those of my own investigating committee, you refuse this honor? Attention, he snapped sharply. The entire service of air is being rendered ridiculous by your conduct. I command you to accept this decoration. You are exceeding your authority, sir. I refuse. Suddenly, the frozen quiet of the commander's face was flushed red with rage. Give me that insignia, he demanded, and pointed to the triple star on Chet Bullard's breast. Your commission is revoked. To the last breathless spectator in the farthest end of the great hall, the white pallor of Chet Bullard's face must have been apparent. One hand moved toward the emblem on his blouse, the cherished triple star of a master pilot of the world. Then the hand paused. I have still another reason for believing Halgren is alive, he said in a cold and carefully emotionless voice. Are you interested in hearing it? Speak, ordered the commander. Chet Bullard, still wearing the triple star, crossed quickly to a phone panel in the speaker's stand at one side of the stage. He jerked out an instrument. The buzz of excited whispering that had swept the audience gave place to utter silence. Each quiet, incisive word that Chet spoke was clearly heard. He gave his call number. Bullard, Master Pilot, First Class, Number US-1, calling Dr. Roach at Allied Observatory, Mount Everest. Microwave, please, and connect through for telephoto projection. A few breathless seconds passed, while Chet aimed an instrument of gleaming chromium and glass, whose cable connections vanished in the phone panel recess. He focused it upon an artificially darkened screen above and behind the grouped figures on the stage. Then, Dr. Roach, Chet queried, and before the whole audience, the dark screen came to life to show a clear-cut picture of a man who sat at a telescope, whose hand held a radio phone, and who glanced up frowningly and said, Yes, this is Dr. Roach. Chet's response was immediate. Bullard speaking. Chet Bullard at New York. When I was in your observatory yesterday, Doctor, you said that you had seen flashes of light on the moon. You remember that, don't you? You saw them some months ago, while I was on the dark moon. The man in that distant observatory was no longer scowling at this interruption of his work. His smile was echoed by the cordial tone of his voice that rang clearly through the great hall.
Correct, Mr. Bullard. An observer at our 200-inch reflector reported them on two successive nights. They were inside the crater of Hercules. From his place at the center of the stage, the waiting commander of air protested. Come, come. We know all about that, Bullard. Are you trying to say? The voice of the astronomer was speaking again. You will no doubt be interested to know that the lights occurred again yesterday at about this time. Let me see if they are on now. I will have the 200-inch instrument used as before, and will show you what we see. Watch your screen, but don't expect to find any substantiation of your wild theory that these lights have a human origin. He laughed softly. No atmosphere to speak of there, you know. We have determined that very definitely. On the screen the picture of the smiling man flashed off. It was replaced by an unflickering darkness that came abruptly into softly shaded light. There was an expanse of volcanic terrain, and a round orifice of tremendous size, where the sunlight cast black shadows. Other shaded portions about were like rocky, broken ground. To Chet, staring at the strange confirmation, came the quick sense of hanging above that ground and looking down upon it. And he knew that in New York he was looking through a great telescope down under the world and was staring straight down into the throat of an extinct volcano on the moon. There were few wonders of the modern world that could thrill the master pilot with any feeling of amazement, but here was a new experience. He would have spoken would have ejaculated some word of wonder, but for the new light that claimed his eyes and brain. The volcano, even in death, was ages old, its cold desolation showing plainly on the screen. No fires poured now from a hot throat. The molten sea that once had raged within had hardened and choked that vast throat with rock that had frozen to make one enormous plain. Ringed about by the jagged size of the tremendous volcano, the floor within seemed smooth by comparison, except for another depression at its upper edge. Here was another and smaller crater inside the great ringed wall of Hercules. The light of the sun struck slantingly across to throw one side of the gigantic cup into shadow, while the opposite rim blared brightly in the lunar dawn. And within the smaller crater, too, one side was dead black with shadow. Dead. No moving thing. No sign of life or indication that life might ever have been. A dead world, this. Its utter desolation struck Chet's half-uttered exclamation to a hoarse whisper of dismay. In all the universe, what less likely place might one discover wherein to look for man. His gaze was held in fascinated hopelessness on the barren, mountainous ring, on the inner inverted cone, on the shadow within that smaller crater, on a tiny pinpoint of light that was flashing there. He hardly knew when he raised one trembling hand and pointed, while a voice quite unlike his own said huskily, Look, look, I told you it was so. 
There, in that little crater. It's signaling. Three dots, now three dashes. Three dots again. The old SOS. The old call for help. It's Haldgren. Again the screen showed the smiling scientist. Caught them just right, he said, and glad to be of service. Now, if there's anything else I can do. Thanks, said Chet, in that same strained voice. Thanks. There's nothing else. A switch clicked beneath his hand, and once more the screen was dark. Those dots and dashes. The old SOS. Who could doubt now? Chet was telling himself this when the commander's voice broke in harshly. Even you must see the absurdity of this, Bullard. You have heard this astronomer tell you what the rest of us knew for ourselves, that there is no air on the moon, that it is impossible for a human being to live there. And you would have us believe that a man has lived there for five years? But I'm taking your distinguished record into account. I am overlooking your insubordination and the folly of your reasoning. Perhaps your feeling about Halgren does you credit, but Halgren is dead. Now I am giving you another chance. I order you to come forward and receive this honor, which is an honor to the entire service of air. Chet was staring in open amazement. No air on the moon, this man had said, and what of that? Neither was there air in interplanetary space, yet he had traveled there. It was inconceivable that this imperious and dictatorial man could be so blind. I can't do it, sir, he tried to explain. You surely can't disregard that message, that old call for help. We were using that, you know, when Haldgren took off five years ago. No longer did a masking softness overlay the hard brittleness of the commander's voice. Your star, he snapped. You are no longer in the service, Bullard. But Chet Bullard, as he stepped forward, that the commander might rip the triple star from his chest was not alone. Walt Harkness was only a pilot of the second class, but he stripped the emblem from his own silken blouse and placed it in the commander's outstretched hand beside Chet's star. Permit me, sir, to share Mr. Bullard's enviable humiliation, he observed, with venomous courtesy, and added, Whatever similar honors were in store for Mrs. Harkness and myself are respectfully declined. We, too, are of the opinion that Pilot Haldgren deserves them instead of us. For an instant, Chet's flashing smile drew his face in the friendly lines. Thanks, he said. But all friendliness was erased as he swung back upon the commander. No thought now of the thousands of staring faces or the millions throughout the world who were watching him and were hearing his words. Chet Bullard clipped those words into curt phrases, and he shot them at a superior officer as if from a detonite gun. You think your judgment better than mine. You've dropped me from the service, and you've got the power to make that stick. But you're wrong, sir, dead wrong, and I'll make you admit it, too. No, don't interrupt. I'm going to say what I please, and this is it, Commander. Hang on to that jewel you are giving me. Keep it ready, for I'm going to the moon. I'm going to find Halgren, if he's still living, when I get there. And, at the least, 
I will bring back some record to show he is the man we should honor. Haldgren, alive or dead, was the first man to conquer space. Neither Harkness nor I would steal an atom of his glory. I'll have the proof when I come back. And when I come... For an instant, the ready grin that marked Chet's irresistible good nature lighted up his face with a silent echo of some laugh-provoking thought occurring in his mind. When I do come, Commander, I will make you eat your words. It's you who will be out of the service, then, laughed out. The Commander smiled, too, smiled coldly, complacently, while his head shook. Again you are mistaken, he told Chet. Never again will you fly as much as one foot above Earth. And still Chet's grin persisted. Commander, he said, a man in your position should not make so many mistakes. I am going. I give you warning now, going to the moon, and you haven't enough patrol ships in all the air levels of Earth to hold me back once I'm on my way and every television screen on Earth showed a remarkable scene. A red-faced, choleric commander of the air who shouted that a group of officers might leap forward to do his bidding. A dark-haired man and a girl who sprang beside him. The bodies of the two were interposed for an instant between the officers' weapons and a fair-haired man. And the lean young man, with his shock of golden hair thrown back from his face, leaped like a panther in that same instant, drew himself to an open window, threw himself through, and vanished among the brilliant lights and black shadows of a New York night. But as he fought his way free of the throng outside, there came above the clamor of an excited crowd the voice of Walt Harkness in cryptic words. The ship is yours, Chet. The fugitive heard Harkness call. It's in cold storage for you. End of chapter 1